All right, James chapter 5. Let's do it. Let's open our Bibles to James chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible here or in the conference center, just lift up your hand. The ushers are going to come forward and uh, make sure you get a copy. James chapter 5. Keep your hands up and they will... uh, Make sure you get it. James chapter 5, starting in verse 13, we're going to finish the book of James. So let me ask you a question before we do that. How many of you enjoyed or felt like the, the journey through James has been very helpful, practical to your faith and living? Yeah, yeah. Well, it makes sense that this is probably the first letter written to the church. And so therefore, James is dealing with the practical side of things, the idea of a persecuted church because of the Jesus in you. So he's dealing with how to live in the midst of all that suffering. So that's why he starts out in chapter 1, consider it joy when you encounter trials of various kinds because God's got an intention with that. He's doing some big things in your life through that. And then he says, if you lack wisdom to deal with it, what are you supposed to do? Pray, right? That's how he starts chapter 1. And here we are at the end of the book in chapter 5, and he finishes. So we have the parentheses of thought for James. It starts with dependency on God in prayer, and it finishes with dependency of God in prayer. And it really makes sense that James is the one who's telling us about it. James, the brother of Jesus, had a nickname. His nickname was Old Camel Knees. And there's a reason for that, and that was because he prayed so much. They said his knees changed shape. And so I think if there's someone who gets to tell us what it is to be dependent in prayer in our life, in our faith, it should be, it should be James, and that's what he does here. James mentions three kinds of prayers that we, uh, we offer to God. We're going to look at those this morning and make some, some points. And let me just say this before we start, okay? If there's any way to make a bunch of Christians feel guilt, it's talk about prayer. I have not met, I'm 50 this year, I have not met one person in my whole life who said, you know what, prayer's not a, that's not a problem for me. I got prayer wired. You know, loving others, but prayer, I got wired. Everybody I've ever met tells me stories about people they've never met, read in a book from a long time ago about people who they emulate about prayer, but nobody I know I've ever met has ever said prayer is, uh, is a strength of mine. Is that a fair assumption? Like, we're, we're really puny when it comes to this idea of prayer. So we could leverage guilt, which would not be a gospel presentation, and make all of us try harder, but that certainly wouldn't be what Jesus would want. But he is clear about prayer. And James isn't pulling any punches, dealing with really specific things to be a praying people about. And he mentions three different types of prayer. The first one in verse 13. He says this, Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Now, you would think it's totally natural to being a praying people in the midst of trouble and suffering. You would think, right? But it isn't true. We're just not naturally a praying people. I met with a couple just randomly on Sunday. They came up to me and they, had, they have a blended family issue and, and complication, right? But certainly not bigger than God. But our first thought always, no matter what size or what issue you're dealing with, is to go, well, what do I do to fix it, right? How do I manage it? How do I, how do, I do the right thing or say the right thing or, or prevent the wrong thing to make it come out the way that I think it should come out, right? I don't meet very many people that said, listen, I spent 10 hours praying over this, and now I know. But James says, when you encounter trouble, listen, why would he say it unless our natural tendency isn't to just grab it by the neck? and wrestle it to the ground on our own. He knows we don't pray. There's lots of reasons why we don't pray. There are, some of them is that we're just lazy. Prayer um, 
has been described as a spiritual discipline. As soon as you put that D word on anything, we tap out. Fair? Discipline? Uh, I don't want discipline. Discipline hurts. It's a little costly. gets in the way of football. All the things that are really important to me. And, and prayer has like this no conclusion to it. If someone said, go and do this thing, and it starts here and ends here, I feel good about it, right? I've accomplished a task, push it off the table and start another task. I, I prefer living life that way. But prayer is a, an open-ended conversation for the rest of my life. Dependency on God all the time in every circumstance. Discipline of prayer. And this idea of being quiet in prayer. I don't do that well either. I'd rather talk then listen, because I don't listen well. And I'm not certain I know what I'm listening to. Fair? So just the practice, the discipline of, of saying something simple like, God, help, and then being quiet long enough to have him even say anything. I'm not, I'm not good at that. We're, we're, we're lazy people. We're a self-sufficient people. I mean, we're used to pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, aren't we? Problem, identify problem, Address problem, solve problem, deal with another problem. We just kind of articulate our, our, our life, our way through life like that. We are self-sufficient people. Now, you know there's a fundamental spiritual problem with that, right? Sinners, God, self-sufficiency, right? All-powerful. Problem, there's a serious disconnect there. Only one is self-sufficient, and it isn't us. But we act that way. That's why we set aside this supernatural kind of I don't know what we're saying or who we're saying it to really, to activity. I want activity. I want to address it and fix it myself. I think another reason why we don't pray is we don't have very many good examples. I mean, isn't it, isn't it true? I mean, every once in a while, I'll have a memory of my father or somebody who prayed something. But for the most part, the champions of prayer are people I don't know. And they could be legend for all I know. We don't have examples you might have grown up in a home where it was self-sufficient or there was no God at all. Or you live in a, in a sphere where it's, all, it's just Bible study all the time and that's good, except that there's a spiritual dimension a part of what we do. We live in a world that we respond to based on sight. But the scriptures say, no, live it another way, live it another way. You don't see what's most real. So live with that in mind. Pray with that in mind. And, and think with that in mind. So we don't have a lot of examples to follow. I think some of us get our theology a little bit, not all the way, and so we have a tendency to try to protect God in our prayers. So we, we get into this, you know, God is an elector of souls. We find Ephesians 1, it marvels us that in, in salvation that God somehow makes a move on sinful man apart from his participation, invades his heart and changes his heart, gives him a heart of faith, and we go, ah, we love that, we love that. God's a determiner, I love that, I love that. But ultimately, we have that leak over into prayer, and we go, well, then it doesn't matter if we pray. If God is sovereign, he's sovereign over everything, so quit praying. Praying is a, a useless activity for people who believe in a sovereign God. That's a lie. Who, who's selling that lie? Say it. Satan is. Because it's not true. We'll talk about the reasons why it's not true, but sometimes we spend our time going, no, I don't, you know, I'm going to protect God on this. I'm not going to pray those types of prayers. I think we struggle with faith. To be honest with you, prayer life is a life of faith. And we don't, we don't believe well. We just don't. We work, like I said, with what we see, not with what is unseen. I think we're controllers by nature, so we want to wrap our little white knuckles around our issues and deal with them. And then ultimately, I think sometimes we wrestle with sin at such a level that we think our sin is why we shouldn't pray. 
Just stop. Is it fair? I mean, that's kind of a big enough bucket to find fault, right, in us, why we don't. But the reality is, James says, if you are in trouble, if, if one of you is in trouble, pray. I think the issue for us is that our dependency on ourselves and not on our God clouds our prayer life and ultimately it robs us of experiencing what God does best. He is sufficient when there is no answer. That's what he does best. So if you don't want God to show up, here's what you do. Don't pray. There's your equation. Write that one down. Do this and you'll never see God move in ways that he only could move. If you want predictable... If you want to be determined how everything's going to happen, we'll just add you and a bunch of sinners to the equation. I'll know how it's going to happen. It's going to be really hard uphill both ways. I'm telling you. You, you want to invite supernatural, only God can do it, then prayer is going to be a part of your life. And James moves on from the, the trouble, which you would think we would naturally pray about, to this side of happy. And he says in verse 13, is anyone of you happy? Let him sing song of praise. The the emphasis of James is that your whole life is a life of focus on God is in control of, God is loving you in the midst of, and you have a tendency to work out your problems on your own and neglect God when it's good. Isn't it fair? How how much is it like us when we're in the midst of uh, good times for us not to think at all about the kingdom? You know, if you're a parent of kids, this for me, this is the best illustration. Um, I remember, and the older I get and the older they get, I remember all the little stages, you know. And everybody has their favorite, but they're all good, right? But But the feeling I get all the time is I don't want any of them to end. I don't want any of them to change, you know, where you're, you're just visiting, you know, once a year. But even though that sounds good, too. Everywhere in it, but we don't have a tendency to say, God, this is awesome. I I love this. I love what you're doing. I love how you did it and and the ways you've, you've worked in our lives and blessed our lives. And, and, and just so you know, this, this idea of good and happy, we treat it like it's an obligation on God's part. Now, do you understand what sin did to happy? Do you, church? See, See, sin redefined the norm. Sin in the garden transferred to the kids of Adam brought in sickness and death and wars and factions and bitterness and envy and coveting and ugly. It brought it into your family, into your life. So whenever happy shows up, you church should go, thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you for that. When, you're, when you go in a grocery store and you have a smorgasbord of options, and the rest of the world doesn't have anything to eat, you should say, thank you, God. Right? When you walk into your job and they pay you to do something you're wired to do and you like to do, and it provides for your family, you should say, thank you, God. Right? When you walk home at night and you walk in the door and these little monkeys climb all over you, you should say, thank you, God. Right? Those are things that James says. It, it, it's really mind-blowing that James has to remind us to be appraising people when good things happen. That says a lot about us, doesn't it? Because we have a tendency to, to neglect it. So pray when it's trouble. Pray when it's good. He mentions a, a second kind of prayer in verse 14. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise him up. 
There's an interesting study on the word sick there. There are many good men on both sides of the story trying to determine the definition of sick. Some say it's dealing with spiritual struggle or weakness, like I'm not very strong in my faith or I'm struggling with this particular issue. And there are many good men who say that's true. And there are others who say, no, it's talking about physical sickness. Of the some 30-some mentions of this word in the New Testament, 18 of them are used with the physical, 14 are used with the spiritual. Let's not try to land on which one it is. Let's say it's both. This issue, this context of this passage isn't necessarily just about verse 14 and verse 15. It's about prayer for God's people. Get it? So if we leave the issue in prayer and work our way through it, I think it can be both. I think God is the one who answers our prayers and deals specifically, as James mentions here now, with the issue of sick. So, this passage is the only place in Scripture that deals with the, the order of healing, telling us how to seek it out. So it's very important to us. But just as a little kind of caution, it looks like when you read it, like A plus B always equals C. But James has not given you the formula, the formula to healing. James wouldn't want us trusting in a formula. He wants us trusting in our God. So this is a discussion about what God will or will not do and our faith in what God will or will not do. But we need to notice a couple of things here in verse 14. First of all, that it is the responsibility of the sick person to call the elders. Now, there's a couple of reasons. One is we don't know everything. There's no way we know what's going on in everybody's life. Some 32 to 3,400 people are going to show up on this campus today. And sometimes it happens where somebody goes, they should know, and they get bitter and whatever. We don't know. You need to talk. But the probably more practical reason that we are called, that it's responsibility of the person, is because it's a kind of act of faith, a, a humbling act of faith to say, listen, would you seek God on my behalf over this issue? Whether it's a physical issue or whether it's a spiritual struggle, either one, would you get involved? That phrase, pray over, might indicate that it's a laying on of hands, a kind of a, a, a symbolic gesture of the Holy Spirit doing the work in the life, or it's a possibility that this person is prone, he, he's incapacitated, and praying over is really that, that visible picture of the sick person. The anointing of oil is used of, of being set apart for special work of God. Some thought it was therapeutic, medical, you know. Like, like we see you in the Good Samaritan, but ultimately, I think it is a, a set apart for special work. It's symbolic. And to pray in the name of the Lord, he mentions in verse 14. One writer said this, I think it said, well, the elders of the church are to gather with the sick person and pray in faith for healing. That doesn't mean they have faith in their prayers. And it doesn't mean that they have faith in healing. And it doesn't mean they have faith in faith. It means they have faith in God. The elders are to pray with absolute confidence that God hears, that God cares, and God has the power to heal. Amen, church? And that's the issue. It isn't that God has somehow given us the A plus B equals healing. It means that God, only you do these things. The ultimate rescuer of people's conditions, whether it's a spiritual condition or a physical condition, is if God intervenes and does a special work. Fair? That's what James's point is here. Let's work, work our way through it, starting in verse 15. And we're going to work kind of the bottom up because I think it makes sense to work our way through it that way. Again, verses 15 and 16. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. And if he has sinned, he will, he will be forgiven. I love that phrase, if they, their sin would be forgiven. It's a, it's a reminder. 
that somewhere in the process of dealing with struggle, whether it's physical or spiritual, there needs to be a question asked, is there ongoing, unconfessed sin in your life? When's the last time you asked that question of your own life? Like we're going to take communion in about 25 minutes. It's going to get quiet. They're going to hand out the elements. Is that when you do it? Is it only when you do it? Do you ever ask the question based on the difficulty of life or the, or the struggle of your sin or, or some physical ailment? Do you ever go, God, it, just do a searching. Do, do kind of a triage of my heart. Is there something unconfessed there? Now, I, this is one of the things I don't think we're very good at it as well, and that is being quiet enough, listening hard enough to God pointing out those things in us. Now, just to remind you of some things, sickness isn't always a result of sin. John 9, remember that story? The disciples came to to Jesus when there was this blind uh, man, and they asked the question of Jesus, Jesus, who, who sinned? Was it his parents or was it him? Which one of these caused this blindness? And Jesus said, neither did. Remember that story? Neither sinned. It was, it was given this man for the sake of me demonstrating power in his life. So watch, folks. Watch, church. Every once in a while, struggles or sin. And I, I would put this with Paul. Remember Paul prayed persistently for the thorn in the flesh? Remember? And he prayed three times and God said what? No, my grace is sufficient. Now, a lot of people have said that Paul's issue was a physical one. Now, this is just me, so cut me some slack, all right? It seems to me that every description of Paul of himself in the Scriptures, that he's pretty tough. Shipwrecks, beatings, you know, persecution, stonings. I mean, the guy probably wouldn't whine too much about bad eyesight or whatever else they said he struggled with. But I think what would kill Paul more than anything else is some struggle with the flesh. Just me. So don't, this is not Bible. You set your pins down. But pretend for a second that it, that it was. Paul says, God, just, you know, if you just move that one thing, what could we do together? Like, it'd be unbelievable. And God says what? My grace is sufficient. So pick whichever the struggle is, whether it's an eyesight or some bad guy in the church giving Paul a hard time, or maybe it's some spiritual struggle no matter what it is, Paul concludes from God's own heart, grace, my grace, is sufficient for you, right? Sometimes God allows things in our life, like the sickness or a struggle, because he's about to show off. And the end of the story, the end of the sentence always is, God's grace is bigger than you, always bigger than you. If your life was just tight and responsible and disciplined, and you were the example of every story, the, che- the hero of every story, right? If that was you, I mean, how much, how much really would go to God? But we're all a bunch of broken people, a bunch of sinners, a bunch of strugglers, a bunch of failures, perpetual failures, things we think we got licked, we come back to, and, and when it's all said and done, we can say, like Paul, what? My grace is sufficient, Sometimes God allows those things because he's about to show off and his glory is most precious to him. But sometimes, folks, sometimes sickness is a result of sin. Let me show it to you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you want to turn there, this we're uh, going to celebrate communion a little bit. This is Paul's instructions on the Lord's Supper. I'm going to read a very familiar passage to you and uh, make that point. Let's look at verse, uh, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians starting at verse 27. 
Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now look at very carefully at verse 30. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Going through the motions, being religious. Here's what Paul says. That's why you're sick. That's why you're weak. That's why you struggle. You got unconfessed pride in your life. Another little story, you don't need to turn there, but it's a story in John chapter 5 where there's a, a man, a sick man laying by the pool for 38 years, an invalid, remember? And Jesus comes by and says, why, why, uh, why are you still sick or how did you get sick? And he says, well, I can't get in the pool. Every time I try, you know, they call for the stirring the water. I, everyone jumps in there before me. I can't make it. And Jesus says to him, rise and walk, right? And he's questioned by the Pharisees of who did the healing and, 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 and all those uh, questions that they were doing at the time to find out if it was Jesus or not. He comes back to Jesus and Jesus says this to him, stop sinning or something worse could happen to you. So you don't have it one or the other. It's both. Sometimes your suffering is, has nothing to do with some sin. And sometimes it can be. And that's what, that's what the scriptures say. But the hardest part of this passage is in the end of 15 and verse 16 because it seems like God is offering a guarantee, doesn't it? Okay, church, look at it. Doesn't it seem like God is saying, just black and white words, just as they read, that God is offering a guarantee when he says... And the prayer of faith, offered in faith, will make the sick person well. And the Lord will rise him up. It doesn't say if, it says it will, right? You look like you doubt what I'm saying, right? Doesn't it say that? That's what it says. It says like, kind of like a guarantee. Now there's a problem with that, isn't there? Because it doesn't line up with our experience, right? How many people have you prayed for and seen no change in what you've prayed over? Anybody ever? Like we have people that come down here every week for prayer here in the conference center and they share real specific things, things about family, things about kids, things about sickness, things about lots of stuff. And we pray specifically for those things. And sometimes we get reports back that, hey, God did something. Sometimes we don't. Gosh, is it the formula? What are we saying in the wrong order? What do we have to do to make this work out? And the reality is that that is our story. A couple of years ago, I had a friend come and say, man, I'm struggling with depression. Now, I'm not one of those who um, struggles with depression, right? A good sandwich and a nap, I'm good, no matter what the story is. <laughs> but many people suffer with weight, like unexplainable, I can't get out of the doldrums, it's dark all the time life, right? And I feel so deeply for them because I can't feel for them. And yet they don't know what to do with it. And I prayed with a guy a couple of years, he said, uh, he was probably close to 40, and he said, I'm struggling with depression, I have my whole life. He was intelligent, he was smart, he was well-employed, he wasn't dysfunctional, he just was dark. And I said, well, let's just pray. Let's just ask God. I mean, God can do that, right? So we prayed, and, and I saw him uh, probably two weeks later, and he had this big grin on his face. I said, what's, what's up? And he goes, I think God healed me. And, and I came, we came back, you know, a couple weeks later, and he was still smiling, so I think it took, you know. And I thought, well, that's, that's incredible, you know. I prayed over him and he gets healing. And then I have another friend who's also fighting depression, like dark, incapacitating, in bed all day, 
life is really, really bad. Depression. Prayed for him. Not once, not twice, not three times. And it isn't going away. So did I do the formula wrong? Is, is this somehow God saying that, you know, if, if you change the, the order of the sentence, if you deal with this and that, there's a guarantee? You know the answer, don't you, church? No. That's not the point of James' passage here. There are some um, who, who use this and abuse this passage. There are those who are, who are teaching this prosperity gospel that says that God always wants you healthy and sin is a result. Uh, uh, sin is the cause of sickness, right? He wants you wealthy, so being poor is a sin. Have you heard that before? And that's clearly not biblical. So there are two ways in answering the question of what is James talking about here in verse 14, uh, 15 and 16 regarding what sounds like a guarantee. One is to say the issue is you, faith. Like, like God's will is limited by your doubts. So if you just believed better, more, stronger, higher, wider, then God would do it. The issue has always been on you, that you have a puny little weak thing. I think that's abusive. I think that's wrong. I don't think that's what the text teaches at all. God's will isn't limited by you ever. Right, church? Ever. I think the better way to understand this is the idea that every once in a while, God, through his Holy Spirit, gives an extra special understanding of what he intends to do in a life. Right? It doesn't happen all the time. You don't know when it happened. You can't conjure it. You can't say the right things to have it happen. So you come for prayer and... Maybe God says, hey, I just, I really have given you faith for this because I'm going to do it. I'm, I've revealed in essence my will, my intentions with this person. And James is saying, pray accordingly. Pray according to his will, that extra in- information God's given you, and you will see those things happen. In fact, Sam Strongs, who is, is part of the Enjoying God Ministries, he writes it better than I can say it. So let me just read this little paragraph. But this is the intention of prayer of faith. This is not just any prayer to be prayed at will, but a unique and divinely motivated prayer. Note the definite article of the before, before both prayer and faith, so it says really, it renders the prayer of the faith. Most likely God enables individuals to pray this prayer according to his sovereign purposes. It is a prayer prompted by the spirit-wrought conviction that God intends to heal the one for whom prayer is being offered. Surely the faith here is more than uh, merely believing that God is able to heal. This appears to be faith that he, in this particular case, is not only willing to heal, but willing to heal now. The faith necessary for healing is itself a gift of God, sovereignly bestowed when he wills. When God chooses to heal, he produces in the hearts of those praying the faith or confidence that such is precisely his intent. The particular kind of faith to which James refers in response to which God heals is not the kind that... may exercise at our will. It's the kind of faith that we exercise only when God wills, right? And in one last sentence to make, kind of punch the, the line home. Thus, the gift of faith is that mysterious surge of confidence that rises within a person in a particular situation of need or challenge and that gives an extraordinary certainty and assurance that God is about to act through his word or action. That's what prayer of faith is. It's God saying to his people, I'm going to do something right now. Now, I've never heard God speak audibly to me. But he does, in Scripture, give unctions. Right? And he says, when he does, pray, because he'll move. He's revealing his specific will in your life. So pray accordingly. 
There's a third kind of prayer. Not only are we supposed to pray for ourselves when times of trouble and times of happiness, and not only are the elders supposed to pray over us, but we're supposed to pray for one another. Look with me at verse uh, seven, 16. Prayer for one another. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. See, this kind of prayer starts with confession. It starts with uh, recognizing our sins, and specifically, James says, to one another. Now, here, let me give you some cautions on this. I don't think James is saying that we need to confess every sin to each other. All sin, according to Scripture, 1 John 1, 9, is if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive, right? And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. However, according to James and many other passages, we are to confess our sin to each other in a couple different situations. One is if we've wounded or harmed or sinned against someone else. We've got to go deal with that, right, church? Seems, seems apparent, seems easy. But there's another aspect of confessing our sins, and that is it, it pushes back against this, this tendency the church has to be plastic and act like we have it all together, this pride thing. I mean, look at us. Just look around, folks. Just take a second, look to your left. Come on, do it. There you go. Look how nice everyone looks. Would you have any idea they're all a bunch of sinners? Whatever, whatever expression of rebellion against God is in the world just walked in the front doors at Redemption Church Gilbert. And nobody would know. Because we stand when we're supposed to stand. We sing when we're supposed to sing. We listen when we're supposed to listen. We'll say hi to each other. How's your day? And we'll leave and we'll smile and, and no one will know. Here's why James says confess your sins to each other. Because you're not supposed to fight alone. You can't fight alone. Uh, it, it, it may be corny, but it helps me. I think God has given us a tripod of stability in our spiritual life. One is given to us at conversion called the Holy Spirit. The other two take our effort. One is the Word of God implanted into our life, and the other is the people of God. You pull one leg, you fall over. Folks, listen, if you're struggling with sin and you can't win, I'm going to tell you one of the things you're not doing. Nobody knows your story. You're living in secret. You're fighting alone. You mean well. I know you mean well. I'm not, ch- I'm not doubting your motives. I know you hate it, but here's what you struggle with. This insecurity that if I come clean on my stuff, I won't fit. If I tell people what I'm dealing with, they won't love me. They'll reject me, right? Isn't that fair? If people know my story, I couldn't survive. One writer said this, Confession makes us sinners before one another, breaks us out of our self-righteousness, and enables us to become a fellowship of sinners. Thus, we become the true church that is founded in Christ's righteousness and not our own. Confession levels the playing field. Agreed? That's the reality. So, So I have some questions. I wonder how many of us are afraid to share our struggles because we are absolutely consumed with what others think of us. Because after all, all we present is the plastic side of us, the one-dimensional side of us, the side of us that knows what to do in an environment like this. They don't know what happens at home when the doors are closed. They don't know what I do when I'm at work or when I'm on my computer. They don't know. But I couldn't tell them. I wonder how many people drift away from the church because they're tired of pretending to be something they're not, so they just tap out, they quit. I don't want to be a part of it anymore. It doesn't feel real. 
I wonder how many people don't ever come to a church because they're absolutely convinced of the image they see somewhere that this is how you have to live and be, and I don't fit with that. And yet church is just made up of a bunch of sinners covered in the righteous robes of Jesus. we got nothing else to claim, right, church? Nothing else. There's not a bit of boasting in anything here. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not sharp enough. I don't get God enough. I don't get anything other than Jesus. And that was a gift of God, so no one should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Everyone. Everyone here is covered by the same blood of Christ. But I think we convince people because we don't confess our sins to each other that sins don't happen here. Fair? Like church? Confess your sins? They don't do that there. No, they sing songs. And they they talk to each other. And they go over to the coffee shop. That's what they do at church, but they don't confess their sins to each other. You're not meant to struggle alone. If your struggle is persistent, look at me. If your struggle is persistent with sin, I know what you've been doing. You've been absolutely by yourself, hating it, weeping, confessing, hating it, weeping, confessing, hating it, weeping, confessing, and you've never come out of the closet and said, you know what, I'm not what you think I am. And there's freedom in that, right? So here's, here's the freedom we have in Christ. God knows us so intimately. He knows not just our actions. He knows the motives of our actions. The Bible says we don't even know that. Like we're stuck. We think sometimes we do things for right reasons and God says, no, I I measured that one. You did that for yourself. God knows us so completely and yet on the other side of his knowledge, guess what? Is full acceptance. See, if anybody ever could look at our story and say, you know what? You're ugly to me and I'm done with you. It could be God. But God fully knows us, and he fully accepts us in Christ. Amen? So it stands to reason that a bunch of sinners who knows what it's like to be given freedom and grace would be able to as well tell me your story. You're fully accepted, right? Freely given what we freely received. The church is supposed to be a place where sinful people can come for healing, a place to receive mercy and grace, to be honest with each other and stop pretending. That's what the church is supposed to be. So can I give you some cautions about this confession? Because you right now are going, yeah, don't fight alone. So all this, all this con- confession is going to happen. Let me give you some just cautions, right? Because it can get out of control. Confessing is a humble expression of your struggle. It is not a boast Now, you would think that this is a no-brainer, but in our culture, i got to say it. Because right now, there are all sorts of people championing around their struggle. In fact, they group around their struggle. They prefer to be around their struggle. The reason why the church is so marvelous is that all of the struggles of all of the sin of all the people are represented in here, and we have one thing in common, and it's Jesus. Right? Come on, shake your head, right? And it's not like we're sitting over in a group here going, yeah, I did the same thing you did. In fact, I put a tattoo on my arm to remind me what I did. And I branded this side of my arm to show me number so I could never forget. Listen, the scriptures say you're a holy people, a royal priesthood. You belong to God. You're a child of the king. You identify with that. Let go of everything else. Let go of everything else. Fight for, fight for the terms that Jesus died to give you. Don't believe the lies that what you struggle with is who you are, because that's not. You are who you are in Christ. Amen? Amen. So, make your confession a humble confession. Be careful who you choose to confess to. Um, Someone that uh, 
won't use the information against you, who has the maturity to handle it, fair. And then confess only what needs to be confessed. Details aren't necessary. And then let it go and move on. Fight for Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, believe it. Believe it, church. It is no more. Pray for each other because the battle is a supernatural battle. We need to beseech God on behalf of our sin and our failures and our struggles. And so James says, don't fight alone. Fight together. Fight as a church. Fight as a people. Fight as friends. And then he adds this in verse 19 and 20. Do you see it? He says, let's move this thing to more intense kind of relationship. Confess your sins to each other and, and then do this. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from the death and cover over a multitude of sins. Get involved with each other's lives. Get involved. So let, let me do a little commercial on Redemption communities, if you're a part of a church and you're not plugged into the one another's, you're not plugged into church. This is not, this, this is the corporate gathering and we get a little fed and we get a little encouraged, but we do a lot of praising God. God's the point of this moment. But the growth and the one another's, the way God told us to live out faith in context is the group, the community, the place where you can break down and care for somebody's kids and care for their life and vice versa, all that stuff, right? Living it out loud. So if you are sitting here and you go, I've never been a part of a redemption community. I mean, I go to church maybe twice a month. Well, I'm challenging you that if you're a Christian, and your spiritual life is struggling, you're missing a point. Fair? And you can, uh, you can reach out to somebody and they'll plug you into that group. But here's what, here's what James says. Get involved in each other's life because people wander off. They wander off doctrinally. I would, I've met enough, I have enough friends who I went to Bible college with who no longer call themselves Christians. It's scary. You, you know that too, Right? It starts a little thing. Like, what, what do you compromise? You compromise on the deity of Christ or you compromise on the, the resurrection or you compromise on all these things, the definition of the sin or, or, or there is no help, whatever it is, and you just slide off the doctrine cracker and over here then you are inventing a religion of your own that has nothing to do with God or salvation or sin or forgiveness and it's gone. And so if you have friends like that, you pursue friends like that because people wander off, right? They wander off in their life too. They wander off and live like the world, spend like the world, lust like the world, watch porn like the world, abuse their families like the world, and they're Christians. And we know how messy that is, right? We see it and we get that feeling in our stomach, but we don't have the courage. And James suggests that there's this equation to dealing with each other in our sins. So when we wander off, James says, do this. Just take courage plus confrontation, and it equals conviction, correction, and confidentiality. Just, just have the courage. Now, here's what will happen. It's going to get messy. It won't be fun. You might lose some friends. But if you do the right thing the right way, and I have to say it that way because you say things in love. A sinner confronting a sinner is a very awkward thing. If Jesus was doing it, great. But we're all pukes. So when we go after a sinner, we say it in humility and fear because right on the edge of our statement is our own failure. But you got to be willing to confront, right? Right? And we're not good at it because this also leverages the thing we do best and that is be plastic. We'd rather go to church than be the church. 
We'd rather show up and, and perform as opposed to show up in love. And that's what James is saying. Get involved in people's lives at a level that turns them away from error and confronts their sin and brings them back to this place of, of, of God's blessing. That's what the church does. And it doesn't quit on that. So if you noticed, I jumped over a particular passage in verse 17. So we're going to back up and look at that a little bit. Verse 16, the end of verse 16 and verse 17 says this, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crop. You know the story of Elijah? Prophet of God dealing with Ahab the king and the prophets of Baal asked God to hold back rain. Three and a half years it didn't rain and then to deal in that moment to bring Ahab to his knees he pours out rain. So, so here we have this illustration of all the illustrations of prayer that James wants to make his point about being a praying church. He brings in Elijah. And there are people who say that, that, that Elijah is, a, um, is kind of an excuse card for prayer. There, there are those uh, people who would call themselves cessationists, that God doesn't do things like that anymore, that would bucket God's activity in time to uh, Abraham or, or Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, and Jesus and the apostles. So those sp- three specific times, that's when God was active. That's when God was healing people, raising dead, and moving mountains, holding suns, pouring down rain based on prayers of men. Those three pieces, right? And therefore, he, Elijah was a righteous man, and he's the example of what you'll never see because only God did it then, he doesn't do it now. Well, if you're reading it all, the simplicity of the text, James uses it for the exact opposite reason. Because he says, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And he says, and Elijah was a guy just like us. So if you're thinking, yeah, I want to do prayer. I want to be a prayer. I want to see people who are sick healed. And I want to see people who struggle with sin, have victory over their sin. But I'm not a righteous man. If righteousness is an exact connection to seeing God move, where is he? Tell me where that guy is and we ask him to pray because it isn't me. Fair? To make a point, James says, yeah, prayer of a righteous man is powerful, effective. And Elijah was a guy just like you. Elijah had fears, Elijah had struggles, Elijah had doubts, Elijah struggled with God. He's just like us. The point James is making is that you can expect the kind of activity of God in your prayer life like Elijah did. That's why he used the illustration. John Piper says this, of this illustration, the logic of the passage seems pretty plain. All of us should be praying for each other and our goal in praying should be to live and pray in a way that would have the same kind of healing effects as Elijah had when he prayed. That's why James wrote the illustration here, was to say, he's just a normal guy and he prayed and God moved. So church, what do we do? Say it louder. Pray. Pray. And your righteousness is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God so no one should boast. You have righteousness. And in, in your difficulty of prayer life, you should go through your life and triage and go, God, is there sin? Is there some embraced behavior or sin or failure or rebellion in my life? Take it. And then the Bible implies that God will give you his will sometimes and do specifically what you ask. He'll help you deal with your troubles and deal with your happiness and all in between through prayer. So let me finish with this just to make some, some clear points. Why do you pray? Why, why should we bother with this activity that James starts the book of James with and ends with? Well, the obvious is that it's command. These are imperatives. Praying is what God has called the church to do. 
We need it. That's also true. Prayer changes us. It really does. It paces us. But let me give you the bigger idea. It changes things. It really does. It changes things. You have not because you ask not. Pray. Pray, church. So can I give you a list of things to pray about uh, amongst the millions of things you already think? I want you to pray for belief. You can't test tube God. Right now, the scriptures make it clear that there is a reality that we can't see that is so beyond our imagination. And that's real. There's more impact on our future than what we see. So pray and believe. Pray big. I don't know what you pray about. I don't know when you say, God, well, I'm done, because that's too much to ask for. Let me just challenge you to pray as big as your God. Try. Try to outpray his power. Try to outpray his sufficiency. Try to outpray his ability. Just pray big. Is there something in your life right now? Whether it's a, let's pretend for a second, you, you're one of those folks who have kids grew up and said, I don't want anything to do with God. And they're crushing themselves and breaking your heart. And have you, have you quit on that? Have you said, okay, it must be just time to stop? Pray. Pray for that. Is there some sickness that's going on in your life or around you or with the person you love and it just doesn't seem like it's getting any better and you're just exhausted? Pray. Pray. Pray big. And let me give you this other thing. Pray small. Because sometimes I think we think that if we come to God with little things, we're, we're kind of irritating God and he's got bigger things to do than deal with my little things. He decided out of all the word pictures in Scripture to describe himself, he calls him da- himself Daddy, right? And then when I picture Daddy, I picture little, little kids who like that term of endearment for their dad, and they bring everything. They're persistent all the time about nonsensical everything, right? Because they're absolutely convinced that, that this is important to you, and it's important to me, and you'd love to see it. And, and, and our God in heaven cares about the little things. So pray small. Pray big and pray small, and then and pray a lot. Because we started this whole thing with a little bit of guilt complex, didn't we? That none of us are prayers. Like we would perceive ourselves needing to be based on some of the stuff we read. Well, God knows that. So pray a lot. Pray persistently. Pray about little. Pray about big. Pray and believe. Amen, church? Amen. James finishes this practical book to a suffering, struggling, persecuted church to try to get them to believe in God. That even though this God-authored work of Christ in their heart is true and legit, can't be lost because it's anchored in the person of Christ, I'll bet you there are times when the church is going, is this worth it? I mean, is this really worth it? I mean, my life has gotten harder ever since I met Jesus. And the reality is James speaks faith back into him and says, listen, God's working and he's about his glory and your holiness, and it's going to happen. So pray. Amen. Let's pray now. God, thank you so much for just uh, the words of James to us. The whole book has been impressive. As if they looked, he looked down the quarter of the time and saw what we'd be dealing with and it's true and, and so we confess our limitations on prayer and it's directly connected to what we believe or don't believe and sometimes God we just are absolutely convinced that you don't care or it's too small for you or too big for you or um, whatever the case might be God just would you help us be a people of faith 
a, a people who um, is able to listen and respond to your promptings. God, when the, when the troubles come, uh, give us the mind to remember to seek your face. When the good times happen, give us the eyes to see the good things from your loving hand, God. And when the sickness or the struggles come, God, we will come to you and ask and ask and ask persistently, trusting your goodwill. God, help us do that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.